Hey, welcome to Dustin Johnson Sports Medicine Radio Show. My name is Josh Dan, longtime sports medicine physician with Texas Sporting Science. Great to have you joining today. What we do here is to talk about the sports entertainment world, the sports medicine niche. I do this uh, from deep in the heart of Texas here in our Docs and Jocks radio studio, joined each week by my co-host, Ferris Potter. Ferris is the voice of Grand Canyon University, longtime sports broadcaster. Ferris, thanks for being on the show today. Look forward to it every week, man. Good good guests, good topics today for sure. Oh, man, we're very excited about our guests we're going to have on. We're going to have on, uh, following this segment, actually, we're going to have on a neurologist and critical care expert, Dr. Jason Siegel. We got to know Dr. Siegel through some of his writings uh, regarding uh, concussions and whether or not helmets are the answer to concussions, and we'll uh, tease that and, and talk to Dr. Siegel about that in our next segment. And then we're going to have on uh, the New Orleans Saints Assistant General Manager, Jeff Ireland. Uh, we come from the uh, heart of Texas here in Abilene, Texas, where we love football. Jeff Ireland is one of us, actually, grew up in the uh, great uh, city of Abilene, Texas, great state of Texas. And we were talking about him when his time that he spent here in Texas, and now his time he spent in the NFL with the likes of the Miami Dolphins and New Orleans Saints. He's also uh, E.J. Holub and uh, Jim Palmer, two uh, NFL uh, scouts and coaches who were uh, great players as well as scouts. Uh, he's related to them. We'll talk about that as well. But, man, we're excited about Docs and Jocks and where it's going. Hey, we're going to tell you about our iTunes podcast where you can listen to us anytime, anywhere by going to D-O-X-N-J-O-X. That's Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X. I want to say thank you to all our wonderful fans that have helped make our Docs and Jocks podcast one of the fastest-growing podcasts out there nationally. And we'll be uh, right back with more of your sports medicine radio show, Docs and Jocks. After this short commercial break, we'll be talking to Jeff Ireland and Dr. Jason Siegel on this show. Stay tuned to the Sports Medicine Radio Show, Dr. John. You're listening to Guy Talk, live from the Sport Clips Haircuts locker room. Caller, you're on the air. <sighs> My girlfriend beat me playing one-on-one. Ooh, sounds like you need to hit up a Sport Clips for an awesome haircut experience and some quality man time. I don't know. My girlfriend always takes me to her salon. Nonsense. Be your own man and get a great haircut in a guy-friendly place from stylists who know what guys need. You may be right. Sure I'm right. Now grab your Y chromosome, get down to Sport Clips, and ask for the MVP. Sport Clips. It's good to be a guy. No one burns calories like Firehouse Subs. Introducing our hearty and flavorful under 500 calorie menu. Steaming hot sriracha beef, hook and ladder light, turkey cranberry, and more. Six new subs, four new salads, overflowing with flavor under 500 calories. And starting at only $5.49. Under 500 calories never tasted so hearty and flavorful. Firehouse Subs. One bite, one taste, you're hooked. Hey, welcome back to Dr. Jock, the Sports Medicine Radio Show. Great to have you joining us today. Hey, remember, if you want to find out more about myself, Dr. Dan, or my co-host, Ferris Potter, you can do so by going to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com, and uh, find out more about myself and Ferris. Hey, Ferris, great having my good buddy on the show today, and I thought we'd just jump right into the sports entertainment world where we talk about it from a sports medicine niche. Man, the NFL, Ferris, is already upon us. It's hard to believe the NFL is here. It's always seems like it comes so early, right in the middle of baseball season, and and uh, doesn't seem like people should be playing football in uh, in July and August. But here we go, man. Sports, uh, sp- you know, the uh, spring training's already not spring training uh, camp has already started. Training camp has, and before we even have the first snap in the NFL, we have had numerous ACL injuries already. Remember, your ACL is your big anterior cruciate ligament. It's one of the crisscross ligaments in your knee. It stabilizes the knee from 
flipping forward as well as rotating too far. And when that ligament tears, you uh, if you don't have it repaired and you're a young, active individual, you are setting yourself up for pretty bad knee arthritis at an early age. Ferris, what is your guess in training camp before, you know, first few days of training camp here, what's your guess? How many NFL players that we had go down in the offseason and early training camp already? You know, I've been trying to keep track of this, and honestly, it seems like every day something comes out. So it feels like like eight thousand nine hundred fifty-two or something. But I think it's like <laughs> like like twelve. Is it is it like yeah. nine or nine or ten, something like that? Yeah, seven seven ACL ruptures oh. already. Probably Unbelievable. Notable the Packers the Packers linebacker Jake Ryan, who's really kind of the uh, glue of that defense right now. He led the team in, uh, or actually was second on the team in tackles last year. He was expected to pick up. I think they run a 4-3, I can't remember, 4-3 or 3-4 defense, but their defense revolves around that middle linebacker, Jake Ryan, and he goes down. So that's going to put, you know, the Packers, who were a lot of people predicting with Aaron Rodgers and them uh, coming back, that they were going to have a good season this year. It puts them in je- definitely in jeopardy. You have the Chargers tied in. Hunter Henry went down. Eagles linebacker, uh, Paul Werlow, Panthers running back. Fozzie Whitaker, by the way, if you want to hear Fozzie Whitaker's uh, interview here on Docs and Jocks, he's been one of our guests previously on the show, so you go back and listen to that by going to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com, listen to our Fozzie Whitaker interview. Also, Rams defensive end, uh, Morgan Fox, uh, Bengals guard, Rod Taylor, and Lions uh, fullback, Nick uh, Baldwin. So it's so interesting to see that these guys have these ACL injuries at such an early stage before they're really even playing in the games. You know, the, most of these these uh, ACL ruptures, when you see them in the offseason, are non-traumatic. In other words, nobody hit them. They weren't tackled and they tore their uh, ACL because they, you know, had forced one through it by, by somebody else. It's usually a cutting maneuver type uh, position where they're, they're actually, they feel a pop in their knee as they're cutting, they fall to the ground, their knee swells up huge, and they have to have assistance getting off the field. But the thing, Ferris, that can lead you to possibly having an increased incidence of an ACL rupture, uh, we've looked at all kinds of different things in studies. We've looked at how big the notch is where the ACL runs through. So there's a, um, you have uh, In your femur, you have condyles, which are the big bumps on the end of the, the chicken bone that you see of the femur. And there's a notch between there where that ACL runs. Sometimes that will be narrowed. We've seen, uh, we've looked at studies of people who have uh, quadriceps strength out of proportion to their hamstring strength or vice versa. We see it more commonly in females. So there was a, a thought that maybe the uh, menstrual cycle of females had something to do with it. the estrogen cycle of females had something to do with it. We also look at the angle where your knee runs. In other words, some people are kind of not kneed. Some people are, are kind of bow-legged. People who are not need, we call that genius valgus, that position uh, increases an angle that we measure when you come into the office called a Q angle, which some people at that angle is uh, very steep. We see that there's more tension on the ACL. And so it, it all works together, how your foot lands on the ground, how your knee is uh, positioned just the way you're born sometimes, how your hips uh, align with your knee. All those things make a difference. I also think there's a big portion of how strong your core is, the muscles that surround your pelvis or, or your the trunk area. If they're weak, you tend to buckle your hip drops, which sinks your knee, knee buckle in, which causes it as well. But, man, it's sad to see these guys going down. Man, can you imagine Ferris being an NFL player, maybe your first or second year in the league, 
and now you're looking at a one-year rehab to be able to come back. It really uh, it, it has to be almost as much of a mental fatigue as it is a physical fatigue for sure. Dr. Dan, we, we talk about this. It seems like, you know, every OTF or, or every every training camp that starts, we have, seems like, you know, 7 to 15 go down before the season starts and mostly, like you said, non-contact. Do, do you think it's just that the first couple times they get out and start doing football maneuvers, it, they're at a risk or is it just freak accident? I mean, I, I would imagine these guys are doing off-season workouts. I mean, most guys don't take a full off-season, so they're still doing, like, lateral power movements and things. So it's it's just weird that it's it just seems like it happens regularly that first week of, of training camp. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think there's a simple answer, answer, Ferris. I think sometimes we try and make it simple so we understand it, but I think there's so many things that go together on whether or not you tear your ACL or rupture your ACL ligament. You know, I, like I said, I think it's how your body's made in general. You know, do you have a lot of, of uh, bend in your knee? We call that genuvalgus, like I described earlier. Do you have the right ratio of strength in your quads and your hamstrings? Right. Is it, is it a female that has the, it just a setup altogether where her hips are pretty wide and it causes the femur to run at an angle that makes her prone to it? Is it a combination of that? Is it, is it that they're uh, cutting harder on surfaces that are – we didn't used to have those types of cutting type surfaces where you could cut at a very sharp angle. You know, we used to play on grass where if you, you know, planted really hard, there was some give. In fact, your foot might slip out as opposed to your ACL having all the tension go through it. I mean, there's, there's so many factors to it that uh, I believe it was Einstein said, when you try to make things too simple, you miss the bigger picture. But I think that is the case with an ACL. I think there's multiple, multiple things that go into it. There are some great studies out there and some great programs out there where people are working and scientists are working on, physicians are working on trying to come up with ways to stabilize how you land. If you look at most of these ACL injuries, it's after they come down from a landing position. So if you look at a soccer player who jumps in the air and then is going to land and plant with the foot that she's going to kick on, that the way she lands with her foot usually turned out, we call it externally rotated, with her knee buckled in, called that Jimmy valgus, she lands on it and then it buckles and then the ACL gives and then it, then it, then it ruptures. So there are programs out there where people try to teach others how to avoid ACL injuries. But here's the problem with that. Most people don't pay attention to their ACL or the, the risk for rupturing their ACL until when? Until they've already torn it, right? Until they've already ruptured it. So getting people to buy into preventative programs is very, very difficult if you haven't had it happen to you already. But if I was a uh, parent of a young, thin, female basketball player who is a great athlete and playing basketball and running track and same with a, a football player, I think that would be something I would be willing to pay extra for, put a special attention to, because it's one year of your very, very short athletic career that you give up when you rupture your ACL. It's a year of surgery followed by rehab, and it's extensive. So if you're going to put your money into something in your young athlete that can really help them have a long, sustained, better athletic career, not only in, in decrease your risk for an ACL rupture, but also improve your athletic ability, I think an ACL preventative program, like the ones we've seen at the University of Cincinnati, and there's some great ones out there, you can do some research on it, but that's somewhere where I think is money well spent. What do you think, Ferris? 
Oh, absolutely. I think any type of prevention and preparation, I mean, like you said, it, it costs you a year, your athletic uh, career. Uh, but yeah, any type of uh, prevention, preparation, any of that stuff, physical and mentally, uh, is great for that. I, I just want to point out, Dr. Dan, you know, we, we say, look, hey, this this is a sports show, but, you know, we're talking about some serious stuff and we got smart guys, well, a smart guy, a doctor on the show. You dropped an Einstein quote in the first segment, like, yeah. I don't think that's unprecedented <laughs> in sports radio. Where do we go from there? If you're dropping Einstein in, in segment one, like, are we going Stephen Hawking? Is that even an upgrade? How do you, where do you go from that? Well, I'm reading, I'm actually on vacation in San Diego as we air today, but I'm reading a book on astrophysics and uh, it's called astrophysics for a, a man in a hurry or something like that. So I, I'm reading. on the brain right now. Dark matter and dark energy, I'm telling you, man, it, it, it boggles the mind. But Einstein was so incredibly smart. But I tell you what, the uh, guests we're having on, like Dr. Uh, uh, Jason Siegel, a neurologist with the Mayo Clinic, he ranks right up there with some of those guys that are as smart as uh, astrophysicists, for sure. But, yeah, no, that, that comes from a book I'm reading right now. I, I've, I've been dreaming astrophysics since I've been reading this book. So the Einstein quote was uh, due to that. But that's I like to read Is that your next hobby? Uh, you know, I read a book every vacation. That's that's one of the things I do because uh, at, at Texas Sport and Spine, I see about 70 patients a day with my two yeah, you don't physicians. Have time. So I don't have time. So one of the great things for me to do is catch up on journals and uh, read books. And I try and pick topics that I think I don't know much about. And I, I believe me, astrophysics is one of them. So that's where the Einstein quote came from. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm not an Einstein uh, um, thinker for sure, but there are guys we've had on this show like uh, Dr. Jason Siegel, who's going to come up in our next segment, who's that smart, absolutely. We've actually so had a rocket engineer, a NASA rocket engineer, who became a doctor, Dr. Clifford Duprane, who's one of our sponsors here on Docs and Jobs. Yeah. But he, yeah, he's a, he was a rocket scientist, uh, and he went into becoming a physician. So there are guys that smart that we've had here on the show for sure, but if you want to hear Dr. Duprane's uh, interview, the rocket scientist who came on uh, Docs and Jocks, you can do so by going to our iTunes podcast, Docs and Jocks, D-O-X and J-O-X, or go to docsandjocks.com. Yeah. So anyway, anyway, that's, that's funny, Chris. <laughs> that's where that came hey, from. I, wanna, wanna, I hadn't heard an Einstein quote in a while on the show, so I was happy to hear that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, the other one that we saw the uh, very first day of training camp was Chargers quarterback Jason Barrett on the very first conditioning drill of the very first training camp. Uh, he goes down, and the Chargers lose their cornerback to a torn Achilles. And remember, that's the your Achilles tendon is the tendon that con- connects mm. your calf, your your gastroc muscle, and your soleus muscle uh, becomes a tendon and goes down and attaches underneath uh, your heel and becomes part of your plantar fascia structure. But that Achilles r- tendon rupture ruptures right, usually right there where the muscle and the tendon come together, and it once again a long rehab because when you jump and land fierce about six times your body weight goes through your Achilles tendon. So, man, you can talk about a lot of force going through a very small structure. It's amazing how we're made and things don't rupture more than they do. But, man, you got to feel for a guy like Jason Barrett. Very first training skill out of the box at training camp, and he goes down and he's going to be out for you know most of the – oh, I'll miss this season for sure. It's not Einstein quote, but John Feinstein wrote the book, Next Man Up. It's a great read, and it's, it's I mean, we're seeing that in NFL from the get-go. Next Man Up, man, it, it's it's bad for these guys, but somebody else is getting the opportunity of a lifetime. Right. Speaking of Next Man Up, we're going to be interviewing with Dr. Jason Siegel here on the next segment here on Docs and Jocks. Man, we want to say thank you for listening to our wonderful show, Docs and Jocks. Brought to you from the Deep in the Heart of Texas, Docs and Jocks Radio Studio. Stay tuned here with us on our entire show, and uh, especially with our Dr. Jason Siegel with injury. A report where we talk about concussions and brain trauma. We'll be right back with more docs 
listening to Docs and Jocks, brought to you in part by Buffalo Wild Wings, First Financial Bank, and MDI Abilene. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan. We're coming to you from deep inside the heart of Texas here in the Docs and Jocks radio studio, joined each week by my co-host, Ferris Potter, the voice of Grand Canyon University. Remember, you can listen to it as well as uh, on the radio stations that are currently in your listening area, but you also hear us at docsandjocks.com or on your iTunes podcast, Docs and Jocks, D-O-X and J-O-X. want to say thank you to all our fans out there making our podcast one of the fastest-growing podcasts out there. Remember that, D-O-X and J-O-X on your iTunes podcast. Uh, we have online, and we're very honored to have online, line, Dr. Jason Siegel. Dr. Siegel is a neurologist with the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, he currently works out of Jacksonville, Florida, where he uh, is a neurologist and a critical care specialist with an emphasis in taking care of traumatic brain injury. Dr. Siegel, thank you for being on Docs and Jocks. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate the uh, the invitation. Well, Dr. Siegel, we first became acquainted with your work. Uh, we were reading about uh, some articles you had uh, written and, and talked about where you were uh, discussing helmets and uh, how they are not necessarily the end-all, be-all cure to concussions. For a listening audience who hasn't uh, heard that discussion before, kind of uh, let them understand why helmets may not be the answer, the complete answer, to stopping traumatic brain injuries in football? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think to, to kind of answer that, we go back to why helmets were invented in the first place in sports. And, and that was really to save lives. Um, you know, back in the day, many people were dying from uh, traumatic bleeds, subdural hematomas, epidural hematomas, all sorts of very severe traumatic brain injury. Um, that's what really initiated the, uh, the dawn of the kind of modern sports helmet. And fortunately, they have done a very good job of preventing death and very severe brain injury. Um, but what is, is still lacking, at least this far in our technology, is um, is any helmet that's going to protect against the mild traumatic brain injury, which is we commonly call concussion, and a lot of the things that go along with concussions. And so um, there's a lot of effort in the industry, academics, and in private industry to try to figure out um, – a way to we'll better understand why mild TBI and concussions occur and try to build a better uh, uh, preventative device for our players at all sorts of levels. Right. And Dr. Siegel, you know, you're an expert in, in uh, looking at the brain and what happens when there is a traumatic brain injury. Kind of lead us through in, in, in a layman's way. How, how do you, what, what happens to the brain when there is a traumatic brain injury that leads to the swelling that then occurs? Yeah, so... It, Think about it kind of as a, uh, a general motor vehicle collision. You know, there's the initial contact, the initial contact that uh, uh, causes airbags to deploy, crumples the uh, uh, the hood and the exterior. But then there's the rebound, and then the car goes flying off. Maybe there's a secondary injury that hits a tree, or maybe there's a secondary whiplash that occurs as the car is turning. Well, the damage that happens in your brain from a, a TBI is very similar. There's the initial injury in which the uh, the neurons, the cells, the supportive cells go under an immediate stress and an energy crisis, and everything that makes those cells stable becomes unstable. And then what you get as a cause of that is a secondary injury that can come minutes to hours, even days later, in which the uh, neurons are under a degree of inflammation, they're trying to heal themselves, they're trying to correct for things, um, and sometimes the brain doesn't do a great job at, at being very efficient at that. So... What we have in, in TBIs of all, all severities is an initial uh, uh, immediate damage and then the subsequent secondary damage that can occur um, later. So 
uh, and that can look like a whole, you know, all sorts of different things. But um, but in general, that's that's how you want to think about it. Right. Hey, we're talking to Dr. Jason Siegel, a neurologist with the Mayo Clinic. Ferris, you have a question for Dr. Siegel? Yeah, Dr. Siegel, uh, it's funny. We interviewed an old-time football player, you know, uh, years ago on, on the broadcast, and he said, yeah, we used to take our football helmets and fold them up and stick them in our back pocket <laughs> when we were done with practice. Um, the helmet obviously isn't going to cure, um, based on what you talked about, you know, all the issues. Is there things you can do to make the helmet help more with the brain injury, or is it really just truly, hey, that's just to help to make sure you don't break your skull? There's not much more you can do to the helmet to help with the sloshing around in the brain inside your, your head. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, going back to us understanding better why these injuries happen, we've seen through some current research that particularly rotational forces, things that turn your head, uh, perhaps cause a greater degree of damage than a linear blow. So you think about boxers, you know, getting a, uh, a hook and turning your head uh, may have a, a worse consequence on the brain than a, a, you know, a jab straight to the forehead. Um, I don't know too much about boxing, but that's about the extent of what I know. Um, <laughs> and so devising a, a helmet, perhaps, that uh, is more able to absorb rotational uh, shock, for example, might be a better option than uh, something that's designed just to take blows from every angle. You know what I mean? So um, I think it's, it's all about understanding right. what is really the, the, uh, the underlying um, uh, uh, severity of the, the injuries that, that can maybe uh, help us figure out a better way to, uh, to absorb that shock. Hey, Dr. Siegel, uh, as a team physician, I'm on the sidelines. When we see traumatic brain injuries, oftentimes we're looking for trying to figure out severity of the injury and trying to figure out is there ways that we can help determine the prognosis on whether or not this player is going to be able to come back and if he's going to have long-term sequela. You're an expert at looking at those signs and symptoms in an in a early traumatic brain injury to try and help us figure out prognostication as far as how, how well they're going to do. What are some of the things that you look for when you have someone that is a mild traumatic brain injury or has had a traumatic brain injury that's being brought into you that you help determine the prognosis from? Yeah, I think it's, it's difficult from the, uh, in the very acute stage, uh, the sideline stage, for example. I think we're pretty good, right. and we're going to be getting better at, at you know, saying, okay, well, you observed, observed a traumatic brain injury or a hit, and now somebody has neurological symptoms. Putting those two together, they have a, at least a mild TBI, and then going through whatever protocol that institute or league has for return to play. When they come back in the clinic is when things get a little little trickier. When they have symptoms for days um, or weeks, and try and prognosticate. We're not, we're not there yet. There's, in the future, maybe some radiographical MRI findings, some blood test findings that might be able to help us lead the way and figure out a more accurate prognosis. Uh, you know, what we try to do is, is address the symptoms in a multidisciplinary fashion, headaches, dizziness, um, cognitive, mental fogginess. I mean, these are all things that several different disciplines uh, can be involved with in trying to treat somebody. Um, I think, again, prognosis has been very, very difficult notoriously, um, especially in the mild TBI uh, population. And I think very, very hard to do immediately on the sideline. Right. And, you know, what are, what are some of the breakthroughs that you see in the acute phase right now of, of those traumatic brain injuries we see? We've heard of nasal steroids, some different things people are trying to try and prevent uh, the, uh, the, the sequela of the inflammation of the brain that occurs. Have you heard anything, uh, new latest greatest breakthroughs is something that might be down the road that we're looking at trying to use 
to try and treat uh, traumatic brain injury in the early stages so they don't go on to be as severe as they can be? Yeah, the um, kind of going back to that, that double hit like I was talking about, you know, there's not a lot we can do, is not a lot I've seen trying to be done about that initial uh, immediate uh, damage um, and because by that point the, the damage is done. So things like intranasal steroids are trying to do is prevent the secondary uh, brain injury as your brain is, is reacting to such a to trauma. Now, we know that, you know, steroids IV don't help. Um, intranasal steroids is an interesting thought. There's a lot of evidence in rats and things like that that maybe you can decrease the amount of brain injury or uh, that's been tried in, in strokes and things like that. But I'll say that we've, you know, cured Alzheimer's a million different ways in rats, but we're still trying to work on it in humans. So right. um, yeah. I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of excitement for that. It's something that can be administered, say, on the sideline easily. Um, uh, you know, if you identify a certain set of symptoms or certain, you know, um, abnormal neurological exam in a certain way, give that person intranasal steroids. Where we're a long way from that, I think it'd be very interesting. Uh, and if, if it pans out, I'm an evidence-based guy, so I like to see some some trials to show that's helpful, of course. But uh, right. um, I, I think we're a long way from from a lot of that. Um, but I'm glad people are working on it because it's it's something that uh, I think is sorely needed. Right. Hey, we're talking to Dr. Jason Siegel, a neurologist with the Mayo Clinic, a critical care specialist, talking about traumatic brain injury and in sports right now. Uh, Ferris, you have a question for Dr. Siegel? Yeah, Dr. Siegel, I mean, we're talking about these brain injuries in the context of football. I'd imagine the vast majority of, of brain issues you deal with as a neurologist don't have anything to do with football. Because so many people are interested, though, in, in, in stopping these in football or helping them in football, I mean, is, is more emphasis going into the research and development just in general that can help out, you know, folks in car accidents or any other walk of life that have brain injuries? Is it, I mean, is this actually a little helpful now that the national narrative is so big around football and brain injuries? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll give you another example of that. Uh, the American Academy of Neurology, which is kind of our, our big society of nerds, um, they, you know, have, we have a national meeting every year and there's, you know, 13,000 neurologists, but they actually have a separate meeting that occurs at a separate time just for sports related concussion. It's something that even within our field and discipline, we've, you know, recognized as a very important, uh, aspect of neurology that probably has gone, um, you know, un uh, undealt with, uh, as opposed to strokes and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and things like that. So within our own society, it's, um, there's an extra emphasis on force-related concussions. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, as much as it's in the, the public narrative and movies like Concussion and, and all the CTE stuff coming out, um, I think it is helpful for, for brain injury uh, research overall. Uh, you know, again, most of the brain injury I see are, uh, are strokes, uh, hemorrhages, uh, aneurysm ruptures, but there's probably some underlying physiology that, that unites all those types of brain injuries. And I, I, I'm with you. I think that the emphasis, again, the public eye about sports-related concussions uh, is probably going to help us figure a lot of things out about those other types of brain injury. Hey, Dr. Siegel, you mentioned that CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, what the pathology findings you find at time of autopsy on patients who've had multiple traumatic brain injuries. Uh, where is the current research looking as far as uh, looking at an early brain or blood marker to detect the CTE as opposed to having to see it only at time of autopsy? Yeah, um, there's probably a lot more out there than, than I'm familiar with. I think we're, we're definitely 
um, going two routes. One is, is again, a radiographic or MRI, specialized MRI route, and the other is a serum uh, biomarker. So, for example, you know, when uh, these, these brain cells, these neurons get injured, they release into the blood, potentially, uh, parts of themselves that we can pick up in the blood and say, ah, that's a part of a, a dying neuron or something like that. And similarly, if there are deposits being laid down in the brain um, that are correlative to a CTE pattern, maybe there's a, 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 some way we can pick that up in the blood. So right now I think there's a lot of work in both the blood biomarker standpoint and a, and a radiographic MRI in particular uh, standpoint to try to better connect uh, the CTE pathology with the concussion burden, the type of hit, you know, and even maybe even down to the type of positions on the football field. But we're again, we're a long way from connecting those in a really linear way. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, Dr. Siegel, what, what do you recommend on uh, athletes who've had traumatic brain injuries? Maybe have come to see you at the Mayo Clinic, and what do you what do you recommend to them as far as facilitating the brain's recovery? Do you recommend a quiet environment or a having a longer period of time to take their tests, maybe if they're in school, those types of things? Yeah, you know, uh, the pendulum, as many things in medicine, you know, kind of swings from time to time. And um, we've gone from a getting back on the field immediately, no big deal, you just got your bell rung kind of philosophy to the other extreme, which is dark, quiet room 24-7 for weeks and weeks. And we're kind of realizing that that's probably not best either. Uh, in fact, you know, probably three, four days after an injury, it's good to start getting uh, some mild aerobic exercise back in, in the regiment. You know, maybe you're not back on the field. Maybe you're still um, uh, not back in the full end of the classroom. But we don't want you to, to stay on the couch, uh, stay in a dark room, turn everything off uh, for, you know, days and days and days. you got to get back into getting your blood flowing. One of the things that happens with, uh, with a TBI is you get a restriction of blood flow to your brain. You got to make sure wow. that you're getting your cardiac output back up. Um, again, probably not day one. Probably three, four, five days later, starting to get back in that kind of regimen. Yeah, we, you know, we have kids who, you know, and I don't think many kids are out there trying to get special privileges necessarily, and they don't necessarily like what I'm about to say. But we have kids who are out there who may have to leave class five minutes early uh, because the the, the hallway between passing periods is too noisy, too loud, uh, brings on symptoms. You know, they don't like being drawn, the attention drawn to them, but sometimes those easy kind of things are helpful to get kids back into school and back into the classroom. I mean, as we know, I mean, to be a high school kid nowadays and missing a few days even of, of class can set you back a long time. It's hard to catch up from. So we try to have right. a graded re-entry into uh, normal activity. Um, and again, we're kind of coming back from that extreme of, you know, no lights, no sounds, no movement, no fun, no activities for too long. That's probably not not helpful for these guys either, guys and girls. Hey, we've been interviewing Dr. Jason Siegel. And, Dr. Siegel, our interview was too short on such a long topic, but I want to say thank you for coming on. If there's someone who's uh, listening to our show, our, our nationally syndicated show, how would they go about uh, contacting you if they want to find out more about you or maybe come see you as a patient? Yeah, sure. So you can check uh, mayoclinic.org. You can check my Twitter J-A-S-O-N underscore S-I-E-G-E-L. Those are probably the two best ways to get a hold of uh, me um, for this topic. So, hey, have me back. I love this. This is good stuff. You guys are great. Have me back. I love it. (laughs) 
definitely. Well, thank you, Dr. Siegel. We appreciate that. We'll definitely do that in the future. And uh, thank you so much for coming on, Doc and Jock, your sports medicine radio show. And we'll right hey, back. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Break. Thank you. Thanks, Doc. You're listening to Docs and Jocks, brought to you in part by West Texas Neurosurgery, Abilene Tech, and Sports Clips. Touchdown. Now, back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, joined each week by my co-host, Ferris Potter. Ferris and I talk about what's going on in the sports medicine world. And, uh, man, we've had a great show so far today. If you just missed our interview we had with Dr. Jason Siegel, he's a neurologist from the Mayo Clinic. That's one worth going back and listening to again. You can do so by going to our Docs and Jocks iTunes podcast, D-O-X-N-J-O-X, and listen to our show anytime, anywhere at your convenience. But that would be a great interview, especially for those people out there. I get this question probably two or three times a year from uh, dads who are interested in trying to buy the best helmet to prevent concussions in their kids. And to be honest with you, it's a very, very difficult uh, topic because people don't want to believe that helmets aren't the answer and the end-all, be-all of concussions. And remember, just like in the movie Concussion, is a great example. Your brain is a, a peach inside of a glass bottle that's filled with water, and it's the sloshing of the peach against the side of the jar that causes the bruising of the peach, just like it causes brain injury and, and uh, traumatic brain injuries. So the best thing you can do to try and prevent concussions in uh, football is your kid is trying to do so is teaching him how to get the helmet out of the way of the tackle, not finding a better helmet that allows him to tackle with his helmet, if that makes sense. So I would really uh, recommend going and listening or, or finding some of the tools that teach kids how to get their head out of the way when they are uh, tackling and how to keep their head up, don't put their head down. There is a uh, tackling ring that Paris and I have talked about here on Docs and Jocks. It's a large foam ring that as you roll it, it teaches you how to grab and, and tackle a moving object while getting your head out of the way. We did an interview with Coach Jesse Burleson uh, after he had purchased this with the Harden Simmons. Actually, we did it together uh, to try and get them to be uh, tackling better. But those are more um, reasonable options as opposed to buying a helmet that allows your kid to avoid concussions. Getting your head out of the way is a better way to do it. Don't you agree, Ferris? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the technique of tackling can, can solve a lot of that problem, but like we always talk about, and like Dr. Siegel talked about, I mean, in football, you're, you're going to get some, some, some head trauma at some point, you know, at a certain level. Um, but I, I found it interesting, you know, we talked about all the different things they're studying and trying to find more causes. You talked about, you know, preventative things. We talked about what, what we can do, you know, as a quick diagnosis or anything you can give immediately to try to help, you know, stem or slow down some of the, the later symptoms. But I thought it was interesting. He said that they're, they're doing some studying now trying to figure out if a direct blow is actually better, you know, than a blow that, that jerks your head to yeah. one side or the other. And, and that kind of goes back to that sloshing around in the brain with the peach, you know, it's like, well, if it, if you get a, if you get a right, a right cross right to your chin, it's going to snap your head back, but that's it. But if you get that, you know, right hook, that's going to jerk your head all the way around and, that, that's interesting. Yeah. That might be an issue. I don't. I don't know how you would. I don't know how you, how you would do anything with that as far as tackling. But that's an interesting uh, approach they're taking. That is the one thing they're looking at in helmets is trying to decrease the rotational forces that come across you as you're hit, like in the temple area. So yeah, there are things that helmets are working on that they were working on with helmets to try and decrease some of those rotational forces. But it is not the end-all, be-all of uh, concussions, for sure. So, hey, let's change yeah. topics a little bit. Let's you and I talk a little uh, baseball, man. Two big baseball hands 
wrist injury to, uh, I guess you would call them key players, but to uh, Aaron Judge and Tim Tebow. I mean, Tim Tebow's in the minor leagues, but we're all rooting for him. At least we are here on Doc and Jock and hoping he'll do well. But Aaron Judge uh, this week, he uh, now has a two weeks longer on the DL after spending the last week on the DL with a bone chip in his right wrist. Uh, he was uh, spotted not wearing his wrist brace. He, he's going to look like he's going to avoid doing uh, any type of surgery. Ferris, when they say you have a bone chip, what that basically is, is, it, is the tip of the bone or somewhere along the bone, there's been a trauma or an injury that just cracked a little piece off the end. And so it's not usually a fracture like you would uh, think of like a femur fracture where you take a bone and it's broken two pieces, like you cracked a chicken, like a leg bone of your chicken. I mean, you crack that in two pieces. That would be a displaced fracture. So these fractures aren't displaced. The bone is, is most of, mostly all intact. It's still aligned well. There's nothing dislocated with it. But you want to let it heal down. Anytime you break off, even if it's a small chip of a bone, there's a lot of swelling that goes along with that. Typically where chips of bones occur at is associated with a joint. And so you'll have swelling of the joint, which makes it difficult in Aaron Judge's case to try and swing a bat. And so they're going to try and let that swelling go down, let him start swinging a bat in a controlled environment, then let him get back into swinging it again. So Aaron Judge is going to go down and uh, be out. What do you think uh, the Yankees, do you think they can uh, withstand him being out three weeks? He was uh, he was hitting, uh, at the time of the injury, he had 106 hits and 372 at-bats. He was hitting, uh, I believe, 285. He had 26 home runs, obviously a big power bat in that lineup. Uh, had 137 Ks in his 372 at-bats with just 68 walks. So a big strikeout guy, big power guy, pretty good average, 285. Do you think the uh, Yankees can withstand uh, losing Aaron Judge for a while? Yeah, I mean, they just kind of keep rolling on. They did some things to bolster that bullpen, uh, make it better. Uh, they got Zach Britton in there, you know. I mean, I I mean, they need him. I, they definitely need him if they're going to – I don't know if they're going to catch Boston, but stay in the running with Boston and Houston. You look at that American League. I mean, you got Boston, you know, with over 70 wins, the only team in baseball with that many. You got the Yankees right there, uh, close to 70, Houston right at 70. Um, I mean, Cleveland is almost an also ran at, at just barely 60 wins. You got Seattle and Oakland are both closing in on 70 wins. I mean, that American League is it's tough. So, yeah, they they yeah. definitely they definitely need Judge. They need Sanchez to come back and start hitting the ball better. He's still out. Um, they're going to need those guys down the stretch because it is very competitive in the American League. Yeah, Aaron Boone could actually fall into a small group of uh, elite coaches that win 100 games their very first rookie uh, season as a coach. Pretty cool that. He's had such good success so far in his uh, early tenure as the Yankees manager. Yeah, I mean, you know, we see that with some of these teams that he got handed a great team. I mean, Brian Cashman is one of those guys who early on it was always thought, oh, well, he's just spending Steinbrenner's money and Steinbrenner's running the team. And, yeah, it's easy to be a GM when you have that much money. But, boy, you look at the team he's put together and then the farm system he created as well. So that he could go out and trade for guys. I mean, he's he's done an unbelievable job with with that team, and and they've still got a lot of lot of good power, uh, good players down in the minor league still uh, that they could deal. You know, the trade deadline's over, but you can always still do you know waiver trades and things like that. So I would imagine they might do a few more things. But you know, to answer your question, yeah, I mean, Judge is one of those guys that even when he didn't have a great postseason last year, last year, you know, you put him in the middle of that lineup, hitting second, third, or fourth, and it just scares the bejeebers out of guys. Yeah, as they say, he looks good coming off the bus. That's always you got to have a few of those guys, you know, that make you a little nervous when you see him uh, showing up at the at the visiting team's uh, field and uh, walking off the bus. And Air Judge is definitely one of those guys. 
Hey, yeah, yeah, and so, he's uh, the guy that you know. Ahead, if, if there is a dust up, if uh, there is a bench clearing brawl, you just you just get right <laughs> behind Aaron Judge and kind of just follow him around. Oh, there's about three or four of those Yankees you can. <laughs> I don't think Stanton would be a bad guy <laughs> right. to follow out. Gary Sanchez is a pretty good guy to follow out. Uh, Bird, I mean, yeah, there's some big dudes on that team, man. No doubt about That's it. Big boys. Yep. Hey, uh, Tim Tebow. You know, we were hoping he was going to get a late season call up with the New York Mets. He's been down in the minor leagues. And uh, he's been playing okay. I mean, here's his stats, Ferris. He's uh, 271 at bats. He's got 74 hits. So he's batting 273, nothing to, too shabby there in the minor leagues. He's got 14 doubles, six home runs, 36 RBIs. Uh, he has here's, – here's his big one. Out of the 271 at bats, he's got 103 strikeouts and only 22 base on balls. He's got a uh, on-base percentage of 336. So he, even though he's batting 273, he doesn't reach base a lot. Once again – Pretty good power numbers coming from Tim Tebow, but now he is he is out. He won't get a late season call up. He's actually done for the minor league season, which is shorter than the major league season, due to a uh, injury to his wrist. I'm sorry, to his hand actually. It's uh, a hamate bone is uh, the very one of the bones that makes up the very end of your uh, hand and wrist, and it is a little hook, and it's out there where if you take your pinky and you draw, continue down your hand to right at the base of your wrist, you'll feel a little bump right there at the very bottom of your palm. And that is the hook of your hammock. And uh, he was swinging a bat, and this is uh, not uncommon. We see it two or three times a year, it seems like. But the bat rolls over that hook of that hammock just right. If you have enough force going through it, it'll crack that little hook, and uh, you have to go in, and typically they do a surgery. Sometimes they even remove the little hook of the hammock to just take it out so it stops giving you discomfort. But when you do that, obviously you're going to be out for a period of weeks in the, in the minor league season and shorter than the major league season. So it does not look like Tim Tebow is going to get his uh, call up as we wished. And uh, we'll have to play another league of, year of minor league ball to hopefully try and make it either out of spring training or uh, next year with the New York Mets. I was kind of hoping that he was going to get called up there. It's just kind of a bummer, huh? Yeah, I mean, you got to think about it, too. I mean, Tebow has been playing baseball he, his first official at bat in minor league ball was September 8, 2016. I mean, you know, it's only been a couple of years. It's going to take him a while. I think those are really impressive numbers for a guy who didn't pick up a bat since high school, you know. Um, I think those are great numbers, and I, I think the Mets probably would have pulled him up, you know, that deserve, especially because of who he is and stuff. That deserved a call-up. So, yeah, it's a little too bad he's got that, uh, you know, he's off on the shelf and not going to get that late-season call Because the Mets are going nowhere. I mean, they're a train wreck, uh, you know, a bit of a dumpster fire with all their injuries. So uh, that would have been a nice shot in the arm for them. Well, one of the things that Tim Tebow does, uh, just take out his uh, talent, athletic ability, he puts people in the seats. There's no question that uh, Shea Stadium would have more seats yep. filled with Tim Tebow at the end of the season than they had uh, whoever's going to come up instead of Tim Tebow. So no no doubt about it, he's, he's definitely a player that I would like to go see in person and see him play, partly because of what you just spoke about. It's amazing the guy starts in 2016, hasn't really played baseball since a very young age. He's been concentrating on being an NFL quarterback and a college quarterback in Florida, and now suddenly he picks up baseball and starts it. If anyone has ever tried to just pick up a baseball bat and go out and try and hit a baseball, it is not something that comes naturally to most people. You have to be not only a very good athlete, very strong, very quick, very explosive, but you have to be learning a very sports-specific skill, which is hitting a baseball, which Ted Williams called the hardest thing uh, to do in all of sports. So, yeah, I think Tim Tebow's uh, really done very well. Hit 273 against uh, AA and AAA pitching 
in uh, at any level of the major league on any team is a very good feat. I know he struck out 103 times, but that's kind of the game we play in nowadays. These pitchers are throwing so hard, they're so nasty that you either hit a home run or have high power numbers and strike out a lot, or you just don't don't play on the field. So I think uh, 103 strikeouts and 271 at bats, though it seems incredibly high, that's over 200 in a major league season he would have. Uh, if he continues at 273 and hits for pretty good power, I could see what the Mets would call him up. So, yeah, I was kind of bummed he didn't get called up. But I think of the two injuries, Aaron Judge has more an effect on his team, obviously, than Tim Tebow. But it's kind of ironic that two of, the, two of the players that we follow the most in baseball right now both went down with hand and wrist injuries in the same week. But Tebow should be good to go. I mean, I'm sure he'll get an invite to Major League Spring Training, and that'll be you know a, a media circus out there. And I honestly think, depending on what the Mets do – uh, in the off season, like I said, their 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 pitching has been horrible. Um, some of their young guys have not produced. You know, he he might he might break with the team if he has a good spring training. He he could easily slot into you know double A AA or triple A right out of the gate. But I, I would imagine he'll be down there for major league spring training. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I think so. I, it'll be a it'll be a fun one. If we were going to go to a spring training, and Ferris I likes to go to, we like to go to baseball parks around the country. That that might be one we put on our. Uh, to-do list next year is go see Tim Tebow in spring training. That'd be a lot of fun, actually. I don't know. Where, are the, Mets, they're, the Mets are down in Florida, right? They're in Florida, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, we uh, like to go to different uh, spring training games. We've been to the Rangers and uh, go to uh, different professional teams all around the country. So that'd be a fun way. Let's put that on our list. Hey, speaking of two more Yankees and uh, New York Mets that are in the news together, Yankees pitcher J.A. Hopp, and uh, New York uh, Mets pitcher Noah Syndergaard, uh, they have uh, been placed on the DL due to get this, Ferris. <clears throat> they are having hand mouth, I'm sorry, hand foot mouth disease. Hand foot mouth disease is a virus in, that typically affects infants. It's usually under the age of five, and they will get this uh, like fever, irritability, sore throat. They will uh, the babies will act like they have malaise. Well, guess what? Both of these guys got it. And uh, they uh, happened, uh, Noah Syndergaard, this week, both had to miss starts because of it. They think Syndergaard got it because uh, during the All-Star break, he went and did a kid's camp where he was working with a lot of young kids and families and taking lots of pictures because you get it typically by, you know, ingesting the viral illness that somebody else has that's contagious, and you get it somehow in your, you know, your saliva, in your nasal passage, and then you get it. So he was working at kids camp. So he's doing a, a kind, charitable thing during All-Star break, and he gets hand, foot, mouth disease, a virus that uh, also affected uh, uh, Jay Happ. So anyway, kind of strange that both the Yankee and a uh, New York Met, both uh, Aaron Judge and Tim Tebow, both have hand, wrist injuries, and then uh, these guys get the same viral injuries. But have you ever heard of hand, foot, mouth disease, Ferris? I have, because you hear it once and you never forget it. Who 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 names these? Like, if you walk in and go, man, my ear, my nose, and my left eye are kind of bothering me. Go, oh, dude, you have ear, nose, left eye disease. He's like, that's that's a horrible name. Hand, well, you know foot, horrible mouth is the virus. Seems like, a, like an virus animal. Or <laughs> yeah, what the horrible name is the virus that causes it is called Coxsackie A16. So I want you to memorize that, Ferris. There's gonna be a test later on on Docs and Jocks on the show, but Coxsackie. A16. Just throw that out Spell there it. sometime when you want to at a party. Spell it. C-O-X? C-O-X. A-S-A-C-K-I-E. Cox Sackey. 
Oh yes, See, that was named after <laughs> Benny Coxsackie, the great, uh, yeah. the great uh, aeronautical space engineer that Albert Einstein hung out with. Exactly, exactly. Hey, we're right back for Dr. Josh and Fort Spencer Radio Show after this short commercial break, man. Great to have you join us. Remember, you can always listen to us on our iTunes podcast, Dr. Josh, D-O-X and J-O-X. We'll see you on the other side. and jocks brought to you in part by sylvan learning center dr melton chiropractic and texas sports hall of fame touchdown now back to more docs and jocks with dr dan and ferris hey welcome back to docs and jocks this is dr dan your longtime sports medicine physician coming to you from inside deep in the heart of texas the docs and jocks radio studio joined each week with my co-host ferris potter ferris is the sports broadcaster for grand canyon university out in sunny phoenix arizona talking about what's going on in the sports entertainment world, the sports medicine niche. Hey, uh, in the time that we have been doing the show today, Ferris, I just we just did the segment on talking about how many ACL injuries there has been, how many ACL ruptures or anterior cruciate ligament. It was at seven in training camp for football players so far before the season's even started. Our craft producer, uh, Brandon Hawk, has been doing our research as we're on the show today. As we've been on the show, it's went from seven to ten. There have been three more today anterior cruciate ligament uh, ruptures. So it is amazing, amazing, amazing how many guys have these ACL injuries in training camp. It's just, it's almost stunning how many they have. So once again, we talk about a lot, but if you're going to do something to try and prevent that from happening and prolong your career, and oh, by the way, it also makes you a better athlete, get on one of the ACL uh, prevention programs. It just can be part of your current workout training program and see if it can keep you from having to go through that. So we've had some uh, great athletes on docs and jocks. We had a uh, soccer player who had gone through seven, yeah, seven ACL ruptures. And she had just gone through her seventh when we had her on air, but you can go back and listen to that interview. She was writing a book. I forget what it was called exactly. You remember the name of the book fairs or, or Hawk, what the name of the book was with the late, the young lady who had seven ACL ruptures uh, was, was writing, but she was going to write it and hope to have young uh, athletes avoid what she had been through. So it's amazing uh, what what uh, happens when that ACL injuries occur, the surgery and the, the prolonged rehab. It's a year long out, but if you can prevent it, man, that would be awesome. But yeah, the counts went from seven to ten. Is that surprising? I think, I think Ferris, before the show, you guessed ten, so you may have been right. Unknowingly, you were right. I said it was seven, but I think maybe your premonition of what was going to happen during the show actually came true. You know, even when I, I said, t- I did, I said 10 and you said no seven, I, I still thought I was right. Say that yeah. again, Hawk. Who, Her name was uh, Jenna Manichi. Oh, yeah, soccer player, was, Jenna Manichi. Um, yeah. And she was writing a book about uh, trying to overcome uh, ACL. She, as she was recovering from, I believe it was her seventh ACL rupture, she was writing a book to help other young people try and avoid the, what she'd been through. So, yeah, she has a uh, podcast, I believe, as well as a blog that she does talking about uh, kind of a diary of what she's going through with her ACL rehab. So, cool show. You can go back and listen to that interview that we had with her, Jenna Manucci, at uh, docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com, or you can find it on our iTunes podcast, Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X. Hey, Ferris, big story in the news right now. Uh, Seattle Seahawks safety Earl Thomas, who's been a uh, – a Pro Bowl safety for the Seattle Seahawks, part of their great defense they had for those years, along with Richard Sherman and several others. Uh, he is holding out, and a big part of his holdout is, here's his quote. I'll just read you the quote. 
if you're risking your body to deliver all of this value to an organization, you deserve some sort of assurance that organization will take care of you if you are hurt. So he is basically saying he's seen his teammates. Uh, he's seen Cam Chancellor and he's seen uh, Richard Sherman go down with injuries, basically change their careers. They got traded or, or leaving the game. And he's saying these guys aren't being taken, taken care of. I just want to dispel a couple of myths out there. One is the current NFL system, the players union has uh, is a big part of the negotiations of this. They have, a, a program, and it's called, for those who work in, in, in for companies that have this, Workman's Compensation is a type of coverage you can, you can buy as an employer that basically has a system set up that takes care of the, the bills that accrue because of the injury. Also, they uh, work on um, giving you a, some form of compensation if the injury causes a disability that you're unable to perform your job as you were previously. So the NFL is covered under that workman's compensation. The NFL does take care of their players as far as injuries occur. They take care of paying for those bills and paying for those injuries. Now, what he may be talking about is that he feels that you should go ahead and get paid. If you have an injury, you should receive the money that was owed to you on a contract. A lot of these football contracts are not guaranteed money. In other words, you might receive a bonus that's guaranteed up front. You might receive some portion of your contract guaranteed. And a lot of them are unguaranteed money. In other words, if you get injured, you don't receive the rest of your money. Maybe that's what he's talking about. He's holding out to receive a guaranteed contract. I know football is unlike a lot of other sports, baseball and basketball. A lot of times they have stipulations where it is guaranteed money. Football doesn't have that as, as often. That's, at least that's what people who are in the business tell me. So maybe that's what he's talking about. But just from a purely injury standpoint, when I take care of an NFL athlete, I fill out forms saying what the injury is, when it occurred, how it occurred, how it was NFL-related, and then I'm paid through their insurance company to work with compensation. Does that make sense, Ferris? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think you're right on him. Mean, I think Earl Thomas is getting toward the end of his career, right? He's going to be a free agent after this year, so he's, he's wanting to sign another big deal. But – you know, if you're the if you're the Seattle uh, Seahawks, you're saying, dude, you're right. You're risking your body, so you should have some guarantees. Well, we gave you that. We've already paid you uh, close to fifty million dollars in salaries, and you're owed another another nine ten million this year. His last contract, Doctor Dan, was a guaranteed twenty five million. So only only about fifteen million of the forty million dollar contract wasn't guaranteed. So, yeah, wow. it, I mean, I get what he's saying. But if you can't if you can't take care of your health after earning sixty million dollars, you know that that's that's kind of on you. So I think I think you're right though. I think he's probably shooting a shot of saying, "Hey, look, we just need to make sure that my next contract has a lot of guarantees because I might not be able to play out. I've already played eight years. If I sign another five year deal, I might only be good for two or three years. So I want as big a signing bonus as I can get and as big a guarantees as I can get." Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make sure when I read that article, it almost sounded like you you were saying the NFL doesn't take care of their injured players when the injury happens as part of their you know NFL career, and they and they do they they do a very good job. Right. The NFL physicians that I know, the team physicians, the athletic trainers that are on staff that take care of the athletes, uh, they're there for that purpose to take care of injured athletes, and they do an incredibly good job of doing that. And the uh, NFL is the one putting the bill on those injuries. Now, the argument could be made that well, like guys that played before <clears throat> in past bygone eras, 
they weren't taken care of because they didn't know that things like CTE and brain injuries and those things were coming down the road. So they finished their contracts, they finished playing, and then they had these unforeseen sequela of injuries that occurred that they didn't know about. And that, that was the whole uh, impetus behind the NFL players suing the NFL, and they, they finally agreed to a uh, settlement where the NFL Players Association was uh, given money by the NFL to take care of those types of players and those types of injuries. And that happened about two to three years ago. So that's even been addressed somewhat. So we have Earl Thomas, if he has an injury, if he tears his Achilles like Richard Sherman, has knee surgery, has you know a neck injury on Cam Chancellor, those types of things, he, he will be taken care of. I just want to make sure that people understand that the NFL has, a, has in place an insurance policy that covers these players. Yeah, and I, and I think going back to the contracts, I mean, we hear it all the time, you know, and it's it's accurate. Hey, in baseball, the contracts are guaranteed. You sign $50 million, they're going to pay you $50 million. In football, they're not guaranteed. But what a lot of agents, a lot of guys have done is, yeah, you sign for $50, you are not guaranteed $50, but you're going to get a signing bonus, and then there's going to be other guarantees, and you're going to get a guarantee of, instead of 50 a guarantee of 35 or something, you know. And if you yeah. play out the whole contract, you're going to get the entire 50 so right. we've come to a little bit of a new age in that. I mean, they're, they're truly they're 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 not not guaranteed contracts. They're just not guaranteed for the same amount you signed for, you know. But it's yeah. a it's a significant yeah. amount is guaranteed now. But there are football players who are making the decision, the conscious decision, not to play football. We see a, a you know the the one we talked about or we uh, highlighted here on Docs and Jocks. Um, I think it was two years ago, Chris Borland, who was had played his rookie year as a linebacker for the San Francisco 49ers, he decided to retire over the uh, worry of concussions and brain trauma uh, that he didn't want to have long-term sequela, or long-term physical injuries or mental injuries from that type of injury. He decided not to play, and he gave back three-quarters of his four-year signing bonus because he only signed for one, he only played for one year. It was reported that he gave it back. I mean, I don't have any obvious... Uh, checks that have been written, but that's what it was reported. Right. Then, and by the way, he's been pretty outspoken about what he feels about the NFL. It, Chris Borland, he didn't go off into a, right off into the uh, quiet blue yonder. He's actually come out, been an outspoken, uh, I guess you would call a critic of the NFL. He's saying that the football is inherently dangerous. He's made statements like that uh, since he's been right. retired. So he's uh, been pretty open about it. But the latest one is a Joshua Perry. He's a linebacker for the Seattle Seahawks. It's funny, the Seahawks are having a lot of bad news here lately. Uh, the linebacker for the Seattle Seahawks, he announced his retirement. He's, uh, he, was, he said it was due to the concerns of his uh, head trauma. He's played in the league uh, since 2016. He played for the Chargers, the Colts, and now the Seahawks. And uh, states that he's going to have an early retirement, another linebacker. It does seem like the position that's getting the most concerned about head trauma, obviously, would be linebacker. It seemed like it need to be running back or linebacker or possibly a safety-type guy who has to hit, hit with their head a lot. But, man, the Seahawks uh, have some more bad news, lose another uh, linebacker. But we thought maybe when Chris Borland left the NFL, we might see this happen more, more commonly. We really haven't seen that since he left. Uh, this is the first one that I'm aware of, and I obviously not, don't have my thumb on the – part of the NFL and every player that leaves and for the reasons why they leave. But Joshua Perry is the first one that I've, I've read about that said he is leaving for that same concern that Chris Borland had over the concern for head trauma. But, you know, you and I, when Chris Borland came out, we said we might start seeing this more often. I don't think it's been the 
slow trickle that we thought, but we may be seeing some of that coming down the pipe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, also if this guy's kind of on the border of their career, and you know, this might this might be for Earl. You know, his you know he's like I said, eight years. That's a long time to play pro football. Career, I'm sure yeah. he didn't worry about it the first four years. The you know when he signed that deal, I'm sure when he signed a five year deal, he's thinking, oh, this is great. Well, now he's starting to think about how he feels, how he sees Sherman get injured, and Sherman's only guaranteed, I think, seven million of like a twenty eight million dollar deal that he signed. You know, so now he's starting to put two and two together as he got a little bit older, going. Uh, maybe it's time for me to, you know, think about my exit strategy in this game because it's coming sooner than I think. I mean, eight years is a long yeah. career for a football player. Yeah, the average uh, football player uh, length of their career, the average is uh, under three years. So, yeah, it's, it's a long time for eight years. No, definitely, absolutely. He's he's had a long, uh, a great football career. He's been a pro bowler, been an excellent player. Hey, one thing I want to go back and talk about that I didn't mention uh, in the end, we were talking about Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees, uh, Strong man, big home run hitter. He was hit in the uh, right wrist and he had a bone chip in his wrist, and he's going to be uh, out for three weeks. He's now two more weeks, and he'll be back swinging the bat again. But it, there was a report in the newspaper, and I was reading it, and I, I thought I need to mention this. They said he was spotted not wearing his brace. And some people said, well, if he had a fracture, he needs to be wearing his brace. He needs to be taking more care of himself. Just to, just to let people know, uh, braces have a time and a place. But you don't want to leave a athlete in a brace for a prolonged period of time, whether it's your elbow, shoulder, or wrist. Joints that have a lot of mobility, that are meant to move a lot, when you put a brace on them, you can actually uh, impede the long-term healing. And once again, there's a place and a time, so diagnosis matters. But you don't want to leave someone in a brace for a prolonged period of time, whether it's a wrist brace, elbow brace, shoulder brace. In the shoulder, you actually, there's a, a syndrome, and it happens in all joints, but if you leave them in a brace too long, you get, get what's called adhesive capsulitis, a big fancy term that's better probably uh, called frozen shoulder, where if you don't move the shoulder naturally and you leave it in that prolonged brace state, you when you finally take the brace off or the sling off, you no longer have the mobility of your shoulder that you did before the brace. So it's called a frozen shoulder or adhesive capsulitis. They call it adhesive capsulitis because your shoulder has a capsule around it, like a saran wrap coating around the whole joint, kind of hold it all in place. And it can tighten up when you don't use your shoulders. So same thing with wrists and elbows. You don't leave them in braces for a long period of time because when you take them out of the brace, it's almost as much of a uh, hurdle to get over trying to regain your motion that you lost because of the brace as, as the injury that heals. So that's why even though uh, Aaron Judge was spotted without his brace, it wasn't that he was most likely being uh, you know, non-compliant with his doctor's orders. Most likely the fracture, the chip fracture, swelling had gone down. They wanted get him getting his moving his, his wrist again. So, yeah, so always be careful what you read in uh, articles about, about what is, is or isn't happening with regards to athletes and their injuries. Uh, if you don't see him in a brace and he had a – and it makes sense. I can see if someone's reading the story and they said uh, Aaron Judge has a fracture and he's spotted not wearing his brace, you'd be like, oh, he's a bad patient, man. He doesn't care for the Yankees. That's not the case at all. He's probably just following his doctor's orders and getting out of the brace. Were you aware of that, Ferris, if you wore a brace too long, that you could actually freeze up a joint? I did not know that. It makes sense, though. I I, I agree. Um, Aaron Judge seems like a responsible dude, so you would imagine he's not just uh, saying, hey, I don't want to wear a brace. Now, if that was Rob Gronkowski, I would, have, I would just <laughs> yeah. assume in that initially that he was just defying doctor's orders. <laughs> we're, but not we're talking Aaron. about the Rob Gronkowski that went out dancing uh, with a cast on his arm after a forearm fracture 
and got so sweaty that he eventually had a uh, infection in the uh, forearm fracture where he'd had the plates placed and had to have the surgery again. We talk about that, Rob Gronkowski. That's the Rob Gronkowski I was referring to. Yes. The greatest nickname of all time in the NFL. Hey, we'll be right back. When we come back, we'll be interviewing with Jeff Ireland. Jeff is the general manager, assistant general manager of the New Orleans Saints. He comes from deep in the heart of Texas, where Dr. Jeff comes from. We'll be talking to Jeff about all of his history here in Texas. And with the Saints, we're right back with more Dr. Josh. to Docs and Jocks, brought to you in part by Abilene Sports Medicine, Hardin-Simmons University, and Lawrence Hall Chevrolet. Touchdown. Now, back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, longtime sports medicine physician with Texas Sport and Spine, joined each week by my co-host, Ferris Potter. Ferris is the voice of Grand Canyon University out in sunny Phoenix, Arizona, one of, we are very honored, Ferris, to have online uh, Jeff Ireland. Jeff is currently the uh, New Orleans Saints assistant general manager. He has a long storied NFL uh, history. Jeff is also uh, proudly from uh, Central Texas, from West Texas area of Abilene, Texas, where our show is uh, coming out of. And Jeff, I want to say thanks for being on Docs and Jocks. Well, good to be on. I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, and uh, you know, you and I, uh, I, I had the uh, privilege of getting to know your grandfather, and your grandfather was uh, Do- uh, Jim Palmer. Jim uh, played for the uh, Philadelphia Eagles and went on and had a great career as a scout in the NFL, including with the Chicago Bears. And then you're also uh, E.J. Holub, uh, is your, I believe he is, is your stepdad. Is that how you're related to E.J.? Yep, he is my stepdad. He's my mom's husband currently, and uh, they live out yeah. in Texas. So two great NFL legends. E.J. Holub, for those who don't know, uh, was – the uh, first pro bowler to ever play both sides of the ball. And so two great NFL legends. What was it like uh, being surrounded by such great football men early in your life uh, now that you're looking back at it, uh, being an being a NFL executive yourself? Well, it certainly um, – you know, football was very big in our family, obviously. We spent a lot of time around the television watching football, a lot of, lot of, lot of time uh, uh, catching the football and, and talking football and um, – you know, so it became a, a very, very high passion of mine at a very young age. And uh, I remember going, driving from Abilene uh, all the way up to Chicago, stopping along the way, uh, scouting a school here and there. Grandfather, when I was 12 years old, and did it again at 13 and 14. And um, football was uh, certainly a mainstay in my family at a young age. Absolutely. And so, uh, for those of our listening audience, uh, Jeff became the uh, ball boy in the 1980s for the Chicago Bears, considered by many the greatest team of all time. The uh, especially the Super Bowl shuffle years and those years. Tell us what it was like. Give us your greatest uh, 1980s Chicago Bears ball boy story. There's probably many. Well, certainly, um, just being around the likes of Walter Payton, uh, Jim McMahon, um, you know, Refrigerator Perry, Dan Hampton. I mean, I could go on and on, but. Uh, I guess my favorite uh, story of all time would be uh, the year after uh, the 1985 Super Bowl. And um, uh, we showed up at Platteville, Wisconsin, and I always took care of Walter, took care of a meeting. I always made sure that he had everything he needed to start practice each and every morning. And um, and so he knew I always took care of him. It was about the first or second day of training camp. and It just so happened that I wore the same size shoe. Uh, when I started getting and grew a little bit. Um, and so he always used a couple pairs of shoes and 
and um, the contract with Kangaroo. Um, back in the, yeah. I don't even know if it even exists anymore, but uh, <laughs> but that was his shoe company, and um, so he handed me a box, uh, and I thought it was just going to be a you know a regular pair of shoes. Sometimes they were brand new, sometimes they were used, lightly used. But either way, I was very appreciative of them. But this particular pair of shoes was um, was unique because they were used. They still had the uh, what we call spat, which is a tape around oh, yeah. the shoe, and um, you know Walter would spat his his ankles, and so he never had to tie shoes. And and then this is a white pair of kangaroo turf shoes, but on the toe they were uh, sharpied black to make it look like they were a black. He still had the sticker of the kangaroo on the outside of the shoe because when he spat it, he covered over the logo and he wanted to make sure that oh, yeah. it could be seen. And I was kind of looked at him, kind of puzzled, kind of confused, and he kind of goes, you know what those are? I said, no, I have no idea. And uh, he goes, those are the shoes I wore in the Super Bowl. Oh, oh and wow. I, you know, and my jaw just dropped, you know, and... <laughs> And I'm like, I can't take these. And you have a son, and you know, he goes, I, he goes, uh, you've been good to me, and I want to make sure that you have something from that game. Oh, and uh, so uh, today, that's uh, other than my grandfather's um, championship ring from '48 and '49. That's probably one of the most um, prized possessions I own. Is uh, oh wow, Walter Payton's shoes that he wore in the Super Bowl. Yeah, I was friends with your grandfather, and he showed me that ring. He was very, very proud of that ring, so I'm so glad that you have that. But, yeah, what a great story. Ferris, you have a question for Jeff Ireland? Yeah, Jeff, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you know, you came up with the grandfather's scouting, and then you came up uh, through the ranks scouting now as an assistant GM and a former GM uh, scouting, obviously the lifeblood of building the team. H- how has it changed uh, how you guys go about scouting from when you first started to, to how you guys do it today, or has it changed much? Scouting is still getting boots on the ground. Uh, that will change. Uh, at least in my lifetime, it probably won't. It's getting out there. It's talking. It's getting um, getting to know your source, getting to know the players. Where it's changed is technology. Um, you know, I know my grandfather, when I first started getting interested in, in, in scouting, you know, he had, we had a 16-millimeter t- uh, film projector. And he had to call the office and get, um, you know, film shipped to him and big boxes. And, and so we would sit sit back and we would watch film together. And um, and to this day, it's still called, but there's zero film involved in football these days. It's all digital. Right. It's, um, um, and I can, at this at this point, right this second, I'm sitting in my office. I'm, I can pull up any game in the National Football League over the last 10 years. I can pull up any college game that's been played in the last five years. Uh, I up, I can sort it. I can play participation. You know, so I get. I'm much more productive. My grandfather probably ever was, um, and uh, so I don't because I don't because I, I can sort and do anything I want to watch specific details um, of. And my grandfather probably never had the opportunity to do. This. Was looking for something, he had to kind of have a memory, um, you know, of, of that play, and he had to write it down, take very good notes which we do today, but um, I don't have to write everything down. I can put it in a folder. I can, I can save that. I can, I can zip it over to a scout and tell him to look at it. I can zip it to my coach and say, Sean, hey, can you look at these 10 plays? It's, it's changed the technologies, but made it much easier to be much more efficient. And, um, 
And so that's that. But it, but other than that, boots on the ground is is always going to be the way to scout. You know, Jeff, what a great pedigree you have with uh, your grandfather Jim Palmer and your uh, stepdad EJ Holub. And then uh, those who don't know it, uh, Jeff is from uh, West Texas, the home of Friday Night Lights. Tell us what it was like growing up in um, Abilene, Texas, playing for Cooper High School. You're, I believe you're a wide receiver and a kicker, and uh, playing for those uh, those big games back in the '80s. Well. I- you know, you don't really appreciate it until you get a little bit older. And then, uh, you know, all these series of Friday Night Lights out, the book comes out, and um, you don't know what that, uh, you know, what you're going through at the time. Uh, you know, but there was nothing better than, than West Texas football. Um, getting on that bus and driving out to Dessa Permian or Midland Lee or San Angelo or even just, just you know, playing those games and, Gosh, I can remember going to Permian Stadium, and the whole stadium was pitch black. I mean, everybody in the whole stadium was wearing <laughs> black, except for our 25, you know, fans over in the corner wearing blue and red. Um, but um, you know, those are those are great memories. I have some, uh, you know, I just we just celebrated our 30 year anniversary. Excuse me, our 30 year reunion. Um, you know, I guess about a month ago, I wasn't able to attend, but a lot of guys uh, had texted me and. And, uh, you know, show me some, you know, back in the day. But, uh, it, look, there's nothing better than West Texas. You know, the people, the, the friends that I have there are fantastic. And, uh, I still, I still even talk to the head coach, Todd Moles. I still talk to Todd and just, you know, just, I got to get my West Texas feel of how things are going at Abilene Cooper High School. And, um, and, uh, so it's, um, it was great growing up out there. I don't get out there as much as I want to, as much as I, uh, would like to. I still have a cousin, Jesse, and um, and Stan out there. My sister lives out in West in, in Lubbock. My parents live out in um, in Midland, but I, but I don't get out there as much. You know, living here in New Orleans. Right, right. You know, Jeff, you were a multi-sport athlete in uh, high school. Played soccer as well as football. Do you think that made you a better overall football player? And do you encourage kids uh, in high school to try and play multi-sports? I do. I do. You know. Having a, a 17 year old son myself, you know, it's I encourage him to play as many sports as he can. Um, you know, as you as you grow up and you become a general manager, you, you have you're, you have access to a lot of different um, you know things that uh, enable you to grow and learn in this sport. I learned is um, your brain doesn't actually start really developing um, uh, and you know or fully developed until you're about 21 years old. So you have to fully um, input information into your brain cognitively, um, and we, we 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 talk a lot about cognitive athleticism. You know, you have your physical athleticism, and then you have a cognitive skill set. You know, processing speed, multi-level tracking, um, different kinds of athleticism in the brain, and for for you to enable to use that athleticism, you have to information into it, and to input it, you have to play multiple sports. And uh, right, and so so guys that play baseball, you know, generally are great, you know, tracking the ball. Um, you know, in our in our business, the the receivers that have played baseball in the past track the ball better. Uh, guys um, that play basketball, they have great quick feet and balance, and they're great jumpers. You know, so but um, I, I definitely encourage you know, young young play, young athletes to play multiple sports, uh, even if. Uh, it's not going to be your your choice uh, of sport 
posture. I encourage you to put as much input and much information into your brain, into your athleticism, uh, because uh, it's just going to make you a better, a better player and a better athlete um, down the road. Hey, you're listening to Doc and Josh. We're talking to New Orleans Saints assistant general manager Jeff Ireland. Fair share question for Jeff. Yeah, Jeff. Okay, so I mean, we're we're starting to get you know the injury reports coming out of the of the of the training camps. We're starting to get you know the first games happening. I mean, it's it's upon us here. How you feeling about the Saints uh, this season and in a very competitive National Football League coming up? Well, we feel good. We feel good. Obviously, we you know when you um, when you finish one season, uh, you feel really good, even though we, we didn't feel good about how our season ended, but we felt good about um, the advances and, and some of the things last season. But, um, you know, that, that, book, that book of the 2008-17 uh, season, that's put up on the shelf. You know, you, unfortunately, you got to start over again. And, um, and so we do feel good. We've, we've talent to this, um, to this team. Uh, we still have it. Hall of Fame quarterback that's playing at a very high level. Um, we we have some youth at some really good core positions. Uh, we have a good offensive line. We have a developing defensive line, and uh, we got a real good secondary. So, um, got some pieces. We're encouraged, but uh, we know we got to keep working and get um, out of our, um, our our young players and our older players, and, and our coaches have to coach, and we got to stay healthy. Number one. Hey, Jeff, how hard was it last year watching uh, fellow Abilinian uh, Case Keenum uh, lead the Vikings uh, up against the uh, New Orleans Saints? Was it hard rooting against one of your uh, West Texas boys? No, that wasn't very ha- that was not, that wasn't very good, uh, Dr. Dan. <laughs> 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 thanks for bring, yeah. thanks for bringing that up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that was yeah. uh, no. Look, the um, you know that was a tough that was a tough moment. Um, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, that play will be relived for the next 25 years, if not longer. And uh, all I know, I was there, and I was just crushed. Yeah. Hey, your uh, grandfather was very, very proud that he was uh, there and helped scout Walter Payton and uh, helped make Walter Payton a Chicago Bear. You were also with the Dallas Cowboys uh, with the recent retirement of Jason Witten. You were there at the very beginning. What was it about Jason Witten when you were scouting him for the Dallas Cowboys that uh, helped uh, you decide to uh, bring Jason Witten and make him uh, a Dallas Cowboy? Well, it was, uh, I can't remember the first or second year with Coach Parcells. I'd been there three or four years, and, and Coach Parcells, when he came in, he and I, whatever, for whatever reason, we hit it off really well. Um, and I remember going back and forth with, uh, with Coach on, on Jason, um, because Jason really, when he came out, we've talked about this, and I went after him this year, um, that Jason wasn't a great um, a blocking tight end. He he just wasn't. He was he was really known as a as a pass catching tight end. And um, we actually have three people that were on that staff. Uh, Dan Campbell is our tight ends coach, and he was actually a player um, when uh, the the year we drafted Witten. Dan, we brought him in as a free agent. He was saying Dan uh, Dan Campbell is uh, from Texas A and M. And then uh, of course Sean, coach, was uh, on the staff as well. And uh, but but Jason Jason was 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 the best route runner that that we saw that year and um, I remember watching his junior tape because he came out as a junior and it, it was good it was good stuff but he had gained some weight that year and and wasn't as quick and twitchy as 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 what we were wanting and his blocking was really just very sub 
And uh, but Bill said, "Hey, look, the same agent." So Bill had been kind of fed information from the agent to take a peek at it. But anyway, Bill told me to go back and look at the bowl game and his sophomore season, and it was versus Michigan. And I can still remember today watching that game, going, "Whoa, this is a different." Well, your grandfather got the most out of Walter Payton, and you got the most out of Jason Witten. So, hey, want to say thank you for coming on, Docs and Jocks. Man, Jeff, always proud of our own here in Abilene, Texas. Very proud out here in West Texas. Uh, you always have a friend here. If you want to come back on and talk to your hometown, you're welcome to come back on the show anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right, we'll be right back for Docs and Jocks after this commercial break. You're listening to Docs and Jocks, brought to you in part by Joe Walker State Farm Insurance, Visual Edge, and Texas Sport Inspired. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. Man, it's been great having you be part of our show. If you're listening to our, to our, one of our many uh, radio stations we're on, that's great. If you also want to listen to us on our podcast, you can catch us on Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X. Hey, if you go subscribe and get us on your iTunes podcast, we can listen. you can listen to us at your convenience, man. I want to say thank you to all our wonderful fans out there who have made us one of the fastest-growing podcasts in the nation, man. It's been awesome. So I want to say thank you also to my co-host this week, Ferris Potter, as always, the great sports broadcaster. Uh, Ferris, been a fun show. I really enjoyed the interview with Jeff Ireland, the uh, general manager of the uh, New Orleans Saints, the uh, West Texas boy. Great interview. Yeah, he was great. Uh, you could tell that uh, he still remembers that Case Keenum play vividly, and uh, he's ready for next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he really didn't want to talk about that too much, and I don't blame him. It probably was hard for him to root against him, uh, another Abilene kid. They both played uh, – Case Keenum played at Wiley High School in Abilene, Texas, and Jeff played at Cooper High School in Texas. But we always root for our own out here in West Texas, so it's a pretty cool story. But, yeah, it was probably a little too soon for him to be happy for Case Keenum on the uh, – you know, the play that changed the uh, NFL playoffs last year. I forgot what they called that play, but there's a name for it. The uh, Miracle of Minneapolis, I believe, is what they're calling it. Yeah, so, yeah. that's what you forget about, right? Yep. You forget yeah. the fact that, um, you know, these plays that are like, you know, the catch by, you know, in the, and, and the, the Music City Miracle, and now this is the Miracle of Minneapolis. There's the other side of those plays, too, where a team's got victory in the bag, and then it just evaporates in front of their eyes. Oh, I know, I know. And uh, the coolest part of that story is Ferris and I were uh, in um, Arizona watching that game together. And I've been telling how Case Keenan was such a comeback kid his entire high school career where I, I was his team physician at Wiley High School. And I had the uh, upfront, you know, seats to watch him uh, all the way through his high school career. And then, of course, I followed him as he went to University of Houston and then his NFL career as well. He's one of those guys that always overperforms and uh, is very underestimated. And so I've been telling that this whole game and, and uh, just happened to be that's the game we're watching together. My son's out there playing baseball, so we get to hang out there and have dinner with he and his family and his lovely wife. And and uh, you and I were jumping around, hugging. I, I remember I was hugging a complete stranger at one point in time when that play happened. It was it was quite the moment. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, it was nuts. We were playing a little uh, cornhole over there on the side by the bar, and then we were coming back watching. And there was like a minute left. And you're like, well, he's a big comeback player. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not not sure I'm seeing it in this case, but okay. And then sure enough, he hits that plate. It's like, are you joking? How did that happen? Yeah. I can't, in the words of the great Jack Buck, the sports broadcast, I can't believe what I just saw was the perfect, most apropos uh, moment, uh, you know, crazy <laughs> right. moment. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. Hey, talking about crazy and what's going on in the sports medicine world, there was a baseball player this week. I'm going to get, kind of give you his background story. His name's Daniel Ponce de Leon. 
It's a long name, by the way. Can you imagine spelling that every time you got to spell your name? David or Daniel Ponce de Leon. He is a uh, young pitcher for the Cardinals. When he was coming up through the minor leagues, he was struck in the head uh, by a, a line drive that came off the bat. He wasn't wearing one of those protective hats that look kind of silly and there haven't been hardly any of the pitchers use them, even though they're available to the pitchers. But the ball came and struck him in the temple, and it actually gave him a skull fracture. And in that area of your brain, when you have a skull fracture, there's a artery that runs underneath that portion of your skull called your uh, middle meningeal artery, and it can sometimes be torn, and it was in his case, which required immediate uh, decompressive surgery. In other words, they had to go where that skull fracture was, repair the skull fracture, but also repair the uh, arterial damage that had been caused by the fracture. It can be life-threatening. It actually is very life-threatening, and he was lucky not only did he uh, survive, but he had no real long-term disability from it. So Daniel Ponce de Leon finally makes his debut with the Cardinals, as a pitcher, he finally makes it back from the surgery, back through the minor league, gets called up to the Cardinals. He's pitching in his first seven innings. He's pitching a no-hitter, Ferris. This is his major league debut. His family, they keep showing his dad, his mom. and Every time I, I have a young son of baseball, every time they show dad, I almost like tear up. I'm like, all the work, knowing how, how much work and time and travel and effort goes into trying to have a, a great career or get your kid that far. And so... He finally made it up after having the surgery, no disability from it. He's in his seventh inning. He's still in a no-hitter. He's 116 pitches in, and I know Ferris is going to drive you crazy. They pull him, and they pull him because they say it's an arm health issue. They don't want to hurt this young man's arm. So they pull him, and not only does the bullpen give up a hit to the next batter, then in the ninth inning, they let up a home run and they lose the game 2-1. to one. So, I mean, not only does Dan, Dan, Daniel Ponce de Leon not get a no-hitter, he doesn't get a shutout, he doesn't get a complete game, he doesn't get even a win. But it's a great story about a comeback guy who came back from his skull fracture, from his bleed on his brain. He not only did that, but he had a great uh, debut, seven innings, no-hit ball. My question to you, Ferris, if you were 116 pitches in in your major league debut and they came to pull you, would you let them take you out of the game without a fight? Well, if you're a rookie, yeah. <laughs> you do whatever your manager <laughs> yeah, says. But, <laughs> but if you're, you know, if you're, well, I don't know. We saw Rich Hill. I mean, he was no rookie, and Dave Roberts took him out because he was afraid he might get a blister. Didn't even have a blister. And he was afraid he might yeah. get one if he kept throwing. So, I don't blister, know. I blister mean, precaution, look, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the whole arm health. I like this. I mean, I like having an idea of pitch counts and arm health and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I, I've seen guys throw 90 pitches and labor. And I've seen guys throw 130 pitches. And they could have thrown 230 the way they were throwing, you know. It's just nice. It's loose. The ball's going where they want. And so I do think there's a massive difference in pitches depending on how your pitches are going. I didn't watch him, but, right. you know, it, too, too bad. I mean, I would think 116, you could throw him out there one more time, but you're probably thinking he's not going to go through the ninth, you know. So, anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. Too bad. Yeah, I really, when he pulled him out, I was like, oh, please, still get him the, uh, still try and get him the uh, win. I mean, not only the win, but the no-hitter. And then the next guy, he, it was a legit hit, too. Here's the thing, a no-hitter. You always want the hit to be legit. You don't want it to be like some dribbler to third that the guy kind of musts or something. They go ahead and give him a hit. You want it to be a legit hit. It was a line drive up the middle, no question about it. It was absolutely a hit, so... Yeah, but I was just at least then after after the no hitter was gone, I was like, well, at least he's going to get a win out of this. And then, and then yeah. I really <laughs> got game finished. 
He did one thing hey, after another. The did you uh, did you see Major League Baseball tweeted out? It was I don't know thirty years, whatever, what ago, a couple weeks ago. They were reliving Greg Maddox through, I believe it was a no hitter or a shutout, or I don't think it was a perfect game. I don't even know if it was a no hitter. It took him the whole game, first inning through ninth. It took him like seventy eight pitches. Like he never went, he never went to a two ball count. I think on anybody or something like that. It was crazy. He got a complete game shutout or no hitter with seventy nine pitches. That is crazy. No, I did not see that. Yeah, I think you had mentioned it to me, but that's beyond belief. It's almost too uh, crazy to, to even. Yeah, that's otherworldly. Yeah, I know. The thing about Greg Maddox, he just didn't mess around. He just uh, he threw strikes. He didn't always throw them down the middle. He was very good at nibbling around the edges. Greg Maddox, just to let you know, I think when I watch a pitcher mechanic, mechanically-wise now, and I, I oftentimes now watch games differently. As a sports medicine physician, I watch trying to figure out where their injuries come from. There are certain things pitchers do, like if you see a young pitcher and his elbow goes above his shoulder in the cocking phase, in other words, your pitching arm elbow is higher than your shoulder, that's a, that's a real risk for a uh, ulnar collateral ligament injury or arm injuries. If you, uh, if when you are, your arm is cocked back and you have the ball back in your hand, if your front foot lands and the ball is still facing downward, that is a sign that the arm is lagging behind the bottom half and they're going to have problems. If your forearm is flying away from you, in other words, when you're in your cocking phase, your elbow should be bent and the ball should be slightly in front of your elbow when you're in that cocked phase. You'll oftentimes see guys like Johnny Cueto who just went on the, uh, DL with an ulnar collateral ligament uh, injury, and he's going to have Tommy John surgery for the, for the San Francisco Giants. They showed his picture when they were talking about that injury, and his his forearm is straight behind his upper arm. So, in other words, it's one straight line. You should have it cocked at your elbow. You should have a bend in your elbow there. He didn't have that. If you step across yourself, if you, in other words, your front foot lands, and you're now going to have to come across your body. To throw the ball, that puts strain on your arm and elbow. Those are the things I look for. Greg Maddox, when I watched him throw, did everything correct. The ball was not facing down when he landed. His elbow was slightly bent with the ball in front of his uh, elbow when he's in his cock phase. He uh, did not step across himself. His uh, glove hand side was you know, didn't fly open. Everything that you should do as a pitcher, mechanically wise. Greg Maddox is a perfect guy to watch. Him and Nolan Ryan both did did mechanics very, very well. Probably speaks to why both of them had very long Hall of Fame careers as well. So I love watching Greg Maddox pitch because he didn't pitch real hard. He had lots of movement. He didn't hit the he hit his spots every time. But of of the pitchers, Ferris, you love to watch. Who's who's the guy that outdoes Maddox? Anybody in your career of watching baseball, and did you like watching them more than Greg Maddox? Um, you know, I mean, Matt Maddox, I mean, the, the one guy I loved watching was on his own team was Glavin because he had that great, big, sweeping left-handed motion. It was just like, it was so repeatable. It was like a great golfer's golf swing, you know. It's like exact same mechanics every time. And he just threw so effortlessly and so easily. And he, he always hit his spots. He moved the ball around. I mean, those guys really pitched, you know. They didn't have that 97-mile-an-hour out pitch. So they just pitched. So uh, those yeah. are two guys I liked watching, and I liked watching David Cohn pitch too. He, toward later in his career, he had a good fastball, but he became more of a, more of a thoughtful kind of approach to pitching too. He was fun to watch, and of course, Oral Hershiser was great to watch. Yeah, so many guys who uh, didn't get it right, like uh, guys who would sometimes uh, 
do foreign flyaway or do some things about right. Like Bob Gibson, they still got away with it for whatever reason. Bob Gibson didn't have a lot of arm injuries. He did, did a few things kind of mechanically, which you wouldn't necessarily teach young guys. He stepped across himself and fell real hard off the side of the mound. But you know, you're not going to change Bob Gibson, right? He did it, he did it his way, and it worked for him. So some guys get away with it, some guys don't. Yeah, a guy that I like watching right now in the big leagues is uh, Reese Hopkins. He's he is the uh, star right fielder, young budding star for the right fielder for the Philadelphia Phillies, great hitter. If you notice, he wears on his helmet, you know, they have the flaps that come down. A lot of guys will just wear them on one side. He has it on both sides. And so I like the fact that he is wearing that protective helmet. I don't see there's any downside to that. It doesn't impede the, you know, your vision of the, of the baseball. All it does is keep you from getting hit in the face like we saw with uh, John Carlos Stanton, you know, when he got hit in the face, you know, and it changed his, uh, you know, almost missed the entire year. So, yeah, I like guys wearing that. Do you, do you think it's uh, going to be something that becomes more trendy, Ferris, as we see more big leaguers doing it? Well, you see young guys like that that are all-stars and home-run derby guys doing it. Yeah, I mean, it, we've always talked about it. Whenever you introduce something new, you got to get one or two big names, and then the little leaguers will start doing it more so just to copy them as opposed to be safe, and the next thing you know, they'll be wearing it. Exactly. It's like uh, all the little people out there listening to you right now, Ferris. They want to be the next Ferris Potter on Docs and Jocks. So, hey, once again, all the wonderful listeners, thank you for, for listening to our show, man. We couldn't do it without you guys. You guys keep us going, man. Keep us motivated. Hey, please sign up and subscribe for our Docs and Jocks podcast by going to DOX and JOX. Hey, until next week, from uh, myself, Doc Land, coming to you from inside the Docs and Jocks radio studio here in the part of Texas, and Ferris Potter, the voice of Grand Canyon University. We'll see you next week. Stay exercising. From all of you and Docs and Jocks, so long. Bill Belichick, the very successful coach of the New England Patriots, once said, mental toughness is doing the right thing for the team when it's not the best thing for you. This concept is extremely important to a winning team environment, but it is also a very tough concept for many athletes to grasp. In today's day and time, so many athletes seek individual fame and recognition, and they honestly don't even consider how to be a great teammate. But really great teams will win because the individual players understand playing for each other. The players are willing to sacrifice self, recognition, and even stats to help their team win. Coaches and team leaders can help set this tone for their team. They can encourage selflessness and sacrifice and create a team environment that lifts up the team as a whole and not just a few select players. Here at the Edge Mental Strength Training, we provide team building to help teams develop a bond and to begin creating a culture of team first. If you are a part of a team that would like to participate in team building activities, you can reach us at the edge by clicking on our link at docsandjocks.com. This has been your Mental Strength Minute. At First Financial, we're celebrating our first 125 years. And we wouldn't be here without our customers. So thank you. Thank you for entrusting us with your dreams. Thanks for your commercial business. And your personal business. Thank you for being part of our family. And making us part of yours. Thanks to you, after 125 years, we're just getting started. First Financial. You first. Member FDIC. Hey, Big Country Seniors. Did you know that a private Christian higher education is now more affordable than ever? At Hardin-Simmons University, high school seniors from the Big Country are now eligible for a $40,000 scholarship. That's $10,000 a year towards your Hardin-Simmons education just for being a resident of one of the 24 Big Country counties. With personalized attention from your faculty, a great university community, and faith-centered preparation for all kinds of careers. Hardin-Simmons University. Why would you not consider HSU? 
What kind of fan goes to Buffalo Wild Wings this time of year? The true sports fan. The type of fan that knows there is no offseason. The type of fan that wants more sports. And guess what? Buffalo Wild Wings is all sports, all the time. True fans want more beer and more wings, too. And with more than 20 different sauces and seasonings, Buffalo Wild Wings has more flavors than ever before. Yep, Buffalo Wild Wings really is the place for true fans. And that's the kind of fan we love. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. Since we opened our doors in 1890, First Financial has followed a simple philosophy. You first. It means we never forget who we really work for. That we know we're entrusted not only with your money, but your hopes and dreams. And it means that our most important asset is you, our customers. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Thanks to you, after 125 years, we're just getting started. First Financial. You first. Member FDIC. 